Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Hello again, Diverse Tech Founders family. I just wanted to give you a quick intro on our guests for this week. They are the co-founders of Clutch, Simone May and Madison Long, a great team and a cool concept that you'll learn more about in today's episode, but I won't hold you up anymore. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Diverse Tech Founders podcast. We met, what, pretty recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago, but you all have some big news to talk about from recently. First, let's just get to know you before all of the glitz and the glamour of Clutch and all of that. So talk to us about your childhood, your childhood self, and whether or not your childhood self would be friends with you today. I think me and Simone, even though we met each other in college, had similar childhoods and also had similar personas, which is interesting because I could see myself actually being friends with Simone as a child, which I don't even feel about my own siblings. You know what I mean? So it's it's interesting because as a child, I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. I was in private school growing up. I was often the only black girl, you know, that whole narrative. But what was interesting was I was completely quiet until elementary school. I didn't talk to anyone. My parents thought I even had like a hearing disability and all these things. And then when I got into elementary school, the teacher brought them in for like a performance evaluation and basically was like, hey, you know, Madison's always talking and um, kind of like a class clown and kind of convinces people to do things they shouldn't be doing. And they're like, what, what are you talking about? She doesn't talk. Like, what are you talking about? And they realized basically once I left the house, because I had an older sister who would basically talk on my behalf. I became this very independent, strong kind of force. I just always knew I wanted to be a leader. Like in third grade, I was like, maybe I could teach this class better. So I'll jot down notes of how it would be if I would be a teacher in the future on, on type of like mental notes. And that's just one anecdote. I don't know if I'd be friends with an eight-year-old today, but I think I definitely would be like, she's cool. You know, she would be proud of where I'm at now. Excellent. So it sounds like there was a lot in your head when you were a youngster and now you're able to get that out of your head. So do you think that, you know, younger you was hoping you would get to this point at some point or do you think it would be a surprise to see what you? I think it'd be a surprise how early I did it. I think I always had a couple of ages in my head, like 27 was an age of me being fabulous. That's what my younger self knew. I knew I was going to like be that girl. Like, so I wasn't worried about being the awkward years. I wasn't worried about any of that college, nothing, because I was like 27. I turned 27 in May, so let's watch out. Then the other year was like 43. I felt like 43 was really going to be the year of my boss moves. Maybe I'm running for president, something like that. So I definitely think she'd be surprised that she's already running a company right now. But... I think she'd be like, yeah, that tracks from the progression of what I what I chose to do after graduating college. Got it. So we are on timeline right now, so far. Above, beyond. Good. That's good <laughs> to hear. So Simone, kind of similar question. I want to echo a couple things that Madison said. I always tell the story around eight or nine. I knew I wanted to be independent. I didn't like following rules. I didn't like being told what to do. My parents would always tell me, you're so bossy. Why are you always trying to tell people what to do? Like, <laughs> There's actually a video of me as a child telling the cameraman, turn it around, show it to my mom. Like, And I'm freaking like three or four years old. Like, That's just always how I've been. And I agree with Madison on being proud of myself my, like, from a younger age because I think I used to look in the mirror at some point really weird and I would say, you know, like, can't wait to be CEO or boss one day. I'm happy that I'm not the CEO. I want to say that too. Madison's much built for that. And I'm glad with where we are now. But I also agree that this was much earlier than I expected. Like I thought that I would be climbing the corporate ladder and doing some of that intense work at another place. So it's interesting to be running a company with Madison as well. But I always knew that I wanted to do that. I'm seeing kind of a trend here. Both of you all were very engaged in your environments kind of growing up, whether you were vocalizing it to where everybody knew or just the people you were talking about. But now let's kind of talk about specifically technology and innovation and describe Mm. or talk about your earliest experiences of touching technology, of innovation, your experience. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I can definitely dive into this. I could talk about this all day. Let's do it. When my dad got his first mobile phone, 
it was this like old flip phone. And I just remember like, this was before texting was really a thing. This was before like, obviously apps and games. When I had that first phone in my hand, I wanted to play with it all the time. I played the snake game. I went through every setting on his phone to figure out how to use it. And I wouldn't put it down. I probably tried to use his phone more than he did because I just was like so fascinated with the tech. And I was so fascinated with just like tinkering. And when my mom got her first laptop, it was this Dell laptop. I remember it was thick. I literally played on that laptop. And I don't just mean like going to find games. I mean, going into the settings. I mean, going into the like internet, figuring out what each part of the software meant. The software was like very cool to me. If you, if you ever talk to another engineer, they'll usually talk about taking things apart and putting things together. I would explore the software piece of any device that my parents would get for work. I'm still around like the same age, nine or 10, because it was just so fascinating to me that this box, this thing could produce a digital result. And I had control over that digital result. I think that was my first introduction to WOW. I really enjoy what technology is capable of now. And I am so still to this day fascinated to see where it's gotten and where it can really go. Because I think it does lead to a more equitable world. There are some implications, but the way that technology has been able to democratize information alone is incredible. And it's only just the beginning, I think. So quick question. Did you break anything? No, because I was scared that my parents would kill me. (laughs) So when did you start building? When I was in high school, I took an HTML course my senior year. And that's when I built my first website. That was the first time where I actually got to see what coding was like. You're basically writing a paper, but then you get to see the results of that paper in a completely different way because you're writing in code and then it doesn't look like what you wrote. And so that was mind blowing to me as well. And it also made me realize what's behind the apps, what's behind the websites. That's also kind of how I knew I was probably going to study something along the lines of software engineering or computer science, because I enjoyed the back-end experience and seeing what results it yields for a large amount of people. How do you go from, I'm looking at the settings on, you know, the earliest phones and laptops to CTO of a fast-growing startup? (laughs) Um... (laughs) Being honest with yourself along the journey, having a lot of tenacity. Tenacity. Yeah. Okay. Because, you mean, as opposed to the average person, I'm reading this book. It talks about going to your guidance counselor and the guidance counselor telling you to try something else. And there's Mm. different stages where people, you have to sort of have a, I'm going to prove them wrong mentality. Yeah. To get there. And I'm wondering what you mean. That's absolutely. (laughs) I think that like, I've even told Madison this multiple times, like, When people have doubt in what we do or what I do, I always see that as a, okay, that's cool, but you're wrong. Actually, people doubting me pushes me to prove them wrong. Even if it's something that's totally ridiculous, you tell me that I was told multiple times throughout my career at Purdue by peers and even sometimes professors, whether it was directly or indirectly, I wasn't meant to be there. If it wasn't for my parents in my village at Purdue, I don't think I would have ever been able to graduate in the computer science field. There were multiple times where I was, somebody told me that I was stupid or didn't know what I was doing, didn't want to work with me. It's like all the kids are lined up at the kickball station and everyone knows who's the best kicker, who's the best runner, who's the best. I was like the last person to be chosen for like a project. And I think that pushed me even further to say, okay, you know what? You got all of you guys in my class. You guys are going to see that I may not be the best coder and I might not be the best software engineer, but I'm going to prove all of you wrong. I'm going to take this to another level. And I think I've been blessed to be able to do that. So we went to Purdue together. So I'm observing it from like going to the business school and observing Simone being one of two black women in the entire computer science program. Right. And at the end of the day, Simone's a black woman. Simone is going to have to be resilient in what she's doing and is going to go beyond just coding to make sure she can get there. So she really understands product. She has a level of curiosity that other people don't. She's spending more time in the lab than these other people because it doesn't come easy to her. And that is something that I can really relate to growing up. Both of my sisters, way higher IQs than I always wearing the advanced things. One is younger, one is older. They're eight years apart, right? And I'm in the middle and constantly talking about, oh, remember that gifted program we did? No, (laughs) ma'am. I don't. But 
Did I end up having higher grades? Yeah. And I ended up being able to start this company because I just recognized when things aren't easy, you you have to be the reason why you still prevail. Yeah. And so Simone's ability even to understand how to talk between the business side and the product side is something that I think a lot of people looking for a co-founder can't find because they're really deep on one or the other. Yeah. A lot of people aren't able to be as agile as Simone is. Because they haven't run entire dev teams as a consultant. They also haven't developed the skill set of like project management to the level that you need to have to be able to run a startup. And so I, I just want to jump in and say that because I think you. you're more well-rounded because it didn't come easy to you versus just being a super deep specialist on a certain script yeah. in a certain coding language. I don't know none of those. <laughs> I think we both had to see just outside of what we studied. Yeah. I think we were both forced to see the world beyond just what we were doing at Purdue. And I think that's why we're here. I think we were both able to understand relationships mean something. Mm-hmm. Understanding people means something. If I want to communicate to you that the sky is purple, I need to find the best way to be able to communicate that to you. Even if you're saying, no, 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 the sky is blue, the sky is blue. I'm going to find a way to communicate to you that the sky is purple because that's my objective. Maybe a bad example, but really what I'm trying to say is we were forced to learn how to communicate. Madison and I both were because of where we were and the experiences that we had. We We were forced to learn other skills that I don't think come as naturally as being able to code or accounting. Yeah. I mean, it makes tremendous sense. And it is pretty advanced communication to reach that point. And the co-founder love here is very strong, which, uh, you know, we'll get to in a moment because we are going to talk about co-founders later. But I just want to acknowledge that right out of the gate. So let's get to the company. Right. What is Clutch for people who have no clue? And how did you come up with this idea? Clutch is a digital marketplace where we're connecting next generation of side hustlers to small local businesses looking for affordable services, especially in the creative digital marketing space. So if you're looking for a TikToker, if you're looking for a graphic designer, you can go on Clutch, book them. Right now, we only have it open to students. So you'd be working with students. You can pick what location, what type of services they provide, and be able to book them at their really affordable rates and support this up-and-coming talent, but also get that unique Gen Z perspective. Got it. Did you all have side hustles in college? I'm just curious. Not in a consistent way. So sure, I'd tutor here. Or sure, you know, someone would watch the dog or something like that. You'd, you'd pay for those things. I think my biggest non-paid side hustle was actually planning group trips and even I know I love travel since I was young I used to put together PowerPoint presentations to present to my family on proposals to where to go on vacation uh, starting in like elementary school so I so I just basically continued doing that in college and we're planning these big group trips or whatever and so I wasn't making any money off that but after I graduated I was like maybe I can start charging for this did you have I don't think so. I was really involved with student organizations on campus. And so that really took up a lot of my time. I also had like a part-time job. I worked for a couple women on campus. And one of them actually was framework that I still use today is always ask yourself who, what, where, when, and why. Dr. Evans taught me that. So that's the same framework I applied to any and everything. I do, especially when it comes to clutch. But no, I didn't have any side hustles. Like Nesby was my side hustle. I was in Nesby and I took on a regional leadership position by junior year. And I think that taught me a lot about managing a team and project management. There's a second half of that question, which is how I got started. But before you jump in there, uh, just a little vignette for for myself. I didn't really have side. Well, I take it back. I did have side hustles, but maybe like you're saying, not in the traditional sense. Like it was like, you know, knocking on people's doors with iPads for surveys in Mm -hmm. some situations. Right. Or like. You know, people standing, especially in D.C., there are a lot of people with a lot of hands handing out a lot of stuff. But mm-hmm. it would have been nice to have Clutch back in the day. So maybe talk about why. Like, why Clutch? Because it's probably an idea other people have thought about, probably not executed as well as you all have. Why? Yeah. No, I completely agree. I think we recognize that a lot of the Black students at Purdue did have side hustles. They were doing hair. They were doing my grad photos. They were doing all these different things. But it was a small few that everyone went to. Yep. With Clutch, we're allowing the opportunity for someone who might be like, well, I just want to dip my toe in and see if I'd be good at something and see what's out there and what type of things people are looking for. We're young, but we're millennials. And our generation is not nearly as entrepreneurial and side hustle focused as even 
succeed in Gen Z's. 70% of people 24 to 18 have a side hustle. That's insane. At least self-reported, right? However they claim it. They are obsessed with the concept of being able to make money on their own terms in their own way. What I did was I had a campus job. But if I could have used that skill set to be making probably double the amount, a minimum wage in Indiana is $7.25, probably $15 an hour helping a small business do what I was doing to help the residence halls, because I was actually doing like consulting and project planning and bringing people together and all these other things. That would have been amazing. I just had no idea that that existed. With Clutch, we're trying to create the value add of here's things that you might not even know exist that you can do in between classes just with your own natural creativity and with your own natural perspective that these companies are desperately looking for, actually. I also want to add to if it wasn't for the work and activities we had outside of school, I don't think we would have grown in the same way. I think a lot of times when kids decide to go to college, we were just talking about this earlier, it seems like a next step. It seems like, oh, this is what I should be doing when I graduate high school most of the time. That kind of starts putting people in these little boxes like, oh, I'm studying business and accounting. I need to join these clubs in business and accounting and I need to do these things to graduate and get an internship. And you know what I mean? But I think that having a platform or a place to go to explore your more creative side is actually a way for you to learn more about yourself and what you actually want to be doing with your life. And it's like a low pressure way to do that. As you're first getting this off the ground, you're getting feedback from people. You're getting feedback maybe from customers, users, yourselves, each other, family, friends, or the like. When did you get enough traction to know that this was it and you wanted to keep going? It could have been even before that. Maybe you were out of the gate and were like, look, it doesn't matter. But at what point did you see that this was something the market was responding well to? So for the first year, so Simone called me in March of 2019 with an idea, and I'll tell you what it was, but completely different than what we're doing now. And the first year, we weren't getting a whole lot of feedback other than from university officials. So what it was, was the stadium concession delivery app where you can order popcorn to your seat. We had a university person that works in food and beverages helping us, consulting us, and letting us know that this is a valid idea. And it definitely is something that is going to be more prevalent as we continue to go to stadium events. But we weren't doing a lot of that market research initially. We were doing a lot of the development. And trying to say, okay, how can we get this mobile app off the ground? Let's try to keep it low key. And I think that approach was actually misguided because when we started getting the feedback is when we started really making traction. So the next year, March 2020, obviously every stadium in the world shut down. So we were like, maybe there's an opportunity to go beyond stadiums. We expanded it and it was called Campus Concierge at the time. We expanded it to dining hall delivery, sort of like DoorDash for dining halls, which was huge for colleges in that particular moment because of COVID. But as vaccines came out and there were other competitors, like Grubhub could quickly turn a solution and be a good competitor as a short-term solution for these universities. They did not want this to be a long-term solution because of the price point. But while we were working in the dining hall space, I was way more aggressively talking to customers and talking to end users, which are the students. And it created this environment where we we're also able to articulate the vision more. We've gotten to an accelerator here in Houston, and we're talking to now investors who've seen a thousand DoorDashes come and go. They've seen a thousand solutions on college campuses come and go. And so being able to get that direct feedback, plus from the customers, got us to clutch last minute. There is a huge spike we've seen in the gig economy, and it's not slowing down because of COVID, remote work, everything else. I think it's like a statistic up to like 50% of the workforce will be self-employed by like 2030 or something like that. Yeah. And so it's, it's a huge growing market. We already know that basically, when we, even though we, were, we graduated college in 2013, Uber was still pretty new, especially in Indiana. Um, oh, we graduated high school in 2013, excuse me. <laughs> and Uber was still very, very new. And so... Just people participating in the gig economy over these last like nine years or so is something that now there's no need to change behaviors. That's already the behavior. That's already the default. So we're also coming in at a time where we're not trying to change a cultural shift. We're just trying to create a nuanced opportunity for a generation that doesn't feel seen on these other platforms. Finding that niche was an evolution of, I really think, the last eight or so months. And we started to see traction immediately. We had 2,500 people sign up for a waitlist in six weeks just through using like Instagram. We were able to raise a million dollars off of that concept within six months because of that direction. And there were just all these other validation points that allowed us to get to 
hey, this is working. But it's been three years. The thing about me and Simone, we didn't quit our full-time jobs until Clutch Very was born. Yeah. So I quit right before we transitioned from Campus Concierge to the Clutch concept because I was in that accelerator. But my goal with that accelerator was, hey, this is 12 weeks. By the end of these 12 weeks, I'm going to know whether or not this is going to work or not. Yeah. If it's not working, we'll shut it down. Me and Simone have never been afraid to shut it down, literally. Yeah. Because we're like, we are not going to beat a dead horse, but every week. Yeah. Every week. And I moved to Houston last March. Every week since I've moved in the last year, further and further validation. And now the ball is just rolling. It's snowballing, right? So yeah. we're moving really quick. Obviously, there's no turning back now. But we definitely were like, we don't want to do this just for the sake of being called founders and for the sake of saying, oh, I started a startup. We yeah. genuinely wanted to empower students yeah. and we wanted to figure out how to do that sustainably. Gen Z and the generation before us and these students have always been the goalpost. Finding a way to support them in the ways that we might not have felt supported or maybe we had that support. We want to be able to provide that for people who might not. And so I think like they've always been the people we care about the most. Super impactful and if you like, maybe you can talk about the accelerator. It sounds like that was a pretty pivotal moment in your life and in the company's life. Like, did it make as big a difference as people expected to? Yeah, totally. So the accelerator was a nonprofit accelerator based out of Houston called Devine. It is focused on diverse founders and supports them for 12 weeks using different frameworks with their partners in Capital Factory, Techstars, et cetera. There's the big name, flashy accelerators that people are like, this is where you go to to really get to where you need to go. At that time, I don't think we would have been ready for an accelerator like that. I think we needed to really understand all the concepts of customer journey, of even the relationships, how you sustainably build these with investors and so on. And we were so early and obviously pivoted halfway through the accelerator that it's great that we're in an environment where we knew the people running this accelerator are not only here so that we can make them their money back and that the equity that they got, because they got no equity. We paid them no money. They gave us a brand. So it was 100%. We just want to see you be successful. Let us know how we can help. And that was a very supportive environment. That was almost like a family style environment of really detailed feedback and help. And so I was the one primarily participating in that. Simone was still working full time. And I 100% accredit a lot of the success over this last year to being part of that accelerator. We've actually deferred offers to other accelerators because we're like, no, we really got a lot out of that. And now it's time to build this business. You need to be very self-aware before jumping into an accelerator because you have to make sure you're clear on what you're trying to get out of it. For me, there's pressure. I just quit a job. I'm making no money. I have 12 weeks to see if this business is viable. So I'm waking up every day making sure I can answer that question in 12 weeks. And we did. So you grew as a person too. Definitely. In, in what ways? Because you're the CEO, you're the leader, you know, you're rocking the ship. I know y'all are co-founders and all that, but there are some, you know, situations. It's probably just you. Yeah. So 100%. what was it like to develop as an individual in Diving? So, yes, developing as an individual in Diving, but also developing as an individual who just quit their job, moved to a new city, left everyone. And trying to do that all at the same time was a very difficult process in the middle of a pandemic, no less. So I think for me, a lot of that personal development came down to prioritizing my needs. I was not sleeping well initially. I started going to therapy to work on how to quiet those anxious thoughts at night of the stress of of that, you know, deadline. Is it going to work or not? If I don't raise money, then the people that we have on this team are going to need to let go. Because there were some people who were contractors, but, you know, they're going to need to find another job, for example. And then once you start hiring full-time, how that progressed. No one's going to be able to take care of me except for me anymore. Madison, when we first met, is totally different than yeah. the Madison there is today. And it's actually kind of cool to see because it's shocked me. And I had the sort of Madison's put her foot down. She used to be the person and... You know, thank God for that, because I think running a company requires this type of personality. But before, if you needed somebody to drive you somewhere, Madison. If you wanted to call somebody at 2 a.m. in the morning, Madison. She was the person for not just me, a lot of people that if you needed something, you went to her. And now she started setting those boundaries because I think she realizes now I need those people to be that person for me. I can still be that way. Yeah. It's not 24-7. I do have to limit my time because there's so many things that I have to prioritize because now I have 
10 people relying on a weekly check yeah. because of the stuff I do. No shade. The technology is how we'll be able to continue raising money and making money. But I have to find the customers. I have to find the investors. And I set the budget. And I forecast. You know what I mean? To make sure we don't mess up. And that we don't wake up one day like, where do our money go? You know what I mean? <laughs> that level of stress is, one, very unrelatable. My dad's an entrepreneur. So I honestly have gotten much closer with him. And that's been very helpful, calling him. And he says now, me calling him is also therapy for him. Because he's felt for so many years very alone on this process. And so he'll call me and just be like, you know, when we just are waiting, just waiting for some news. And he just called me like that last week. And I'm like, yes, I know. I know how it is. And so I love that I have that relationship with him and that that's been evolving. And I've started to make more founder friends from a general who was in Madison's immediate circle. It has shifted a lot. I think setting those boundaries has been very hard for people who were like, Hey, I thought I could call you at three in the afternoon. I can't anymore. Like those type of things have been really hard for some friends. We have always said at the beginning of this, the middle of this last year, we have to protect our friendship and our relationship above all else. Yeah. Because this business, as wonderful as it is, means nothing if we are not, not on good. the same page. Yeah. Or just not good. We don't have to be on the same page. We just need to be good and have that mutual respect and care mm-hmm. and love for each other to make sure that we are in the right headspace to continue leading and building. Leaning more on Simone over this last year has been helpful while also still having boundaries of what's work and what's friendship. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a story about uh, like a co-founder test, I guess, where it's like, you know, if your co-founder like calls you and is stranded and you need help, you know, how far would you be willing to go? You know, they're like, find them. And if the answer to that question is anything other it then as far as it takes, you're probably not the right co-founder team. And I get that vibe. Mm, from that was you. like New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know. I feel like you try to help each other in the most efficient and helpful way possible, probably. It's good. And although it's not just you two who are responsible for sort of the meteoric, if I said that right, but like the rocket ship rise that you all have had, like there are other people. So who in your yes. personal and professional network provide its value that you really didn't expect. I know you mentioned your dad. That could mm-hmm. that could be it as well. But if there's anybody else, either one of you that want to talk about somebody who showed up in a way you maybe weren't expecting when you got this thing started. That is a really good question. So hundred percent my dad. Hundred percent. All my life I knew was an entrepreneur. I didn't know what he did. And now I do. The day I called him with this idea, he was like, we're gonna get you incorporated by Friday. We're incorporated. I didn't know how to do that, right? So, and and he was like, and if you need to hire people, let me know. Simone's dad really came and stepped up as well. And like, she can elaborate on that as well. But for the first year or year and a half, it was really our dads helping get the foundation. Yeah. My mom helps me a lot with my investor relations. She's an excellent communicator, is excellent at putting together our investor updates and language and pitching and sales. She's just a master in that. And so me having to go out and conquer my fear of stage fright and present and pitch all the time has been really helpful from her guidance. The stuff we do on a day-to-day basis or the little wins we have along the way, I sometimes don't even take time to reflect or rejoice in. And I have some friends that consistently, no matter what, are posting it, Yeah, are, are reaching out to me and things like that. I'm like, I'm not even posting this on my own Instagram story. Like, <laughs> this is just, you know, some yeah, little great. thing that happened, like whatever. And they're just always consistently showing up and just like, I'm so proud of you, even if they don't know what it means. Yeah, they're like, yeah, nice. yeah, that's great. Oh, I'm so proud of them. <laughs> and they've been so consistent, which has been comfort in these very like, sometimes really bad days. That question is like, I'm digging deep in my brain because it's like, There's so many people, I think, that have shown up. I was thinking about this the other day. Sometimes often you'll hear people who have amassed any level of success. I'm actually more surprised and enthused about the people that have. And it is a lot more than I even would have ever expected. I'm more of a pessimist and I don't expect a lot from people. The people that I did expect to show up did, which I'm thankful for. Like my dad, my mom, my sister, my family, my friends. Some of the less close relationships with the folks at Mercury Fund, the people in Div Inc., those people who didn't know anything about me or Madison prior to this, they have shown up in ways that I will forever be grateful for and would have never expected. Because actively being there, we can show up at Mercury Fund's office and just think tank. We get great advice because, I don't know, there's just like a mutual love and respect and 
they want to see you win. And I think it's when people who you never really knew, but now feel like you've known forever, show up and want to see you win. That's what's crazy. Yeah, that sounds great and not pessimistic at all. It sounds like you all have an abundance of riches and friends and all that good stuff. Yeah, uh, luckily. <laughs> I don't think we would be able to have done this without that, without blessed, the community that we have. Blessed and grateful. So we've been vibing as really enjoying kind of the co-founder chemistry here. So instead of like making it about this relationship, I want to make it just as abstract as possible and think about if you were creating a co-founder from scratch, what's something that you would add that's really hard to find in a co-founder? Like I know y'all are straight, y'all have each other's back, yin and yang and all that. But if you were giving advice to folks who are just one side of the coin or one of many sides of multi-sided coin or die or whatever what would you encourage them to look for that would be pretty difficult to find i can actually start with that because i think it also depends on your personality and self-awareness in general i think is really important for anybody that wants to have a company where i struggle is in two different areas seeing the other side of the coin sometimes i have to force myself to do that it's not by nature and the second piece is being very heads down and focus on one thing at a time the thing about Madison, as a founder that I appreciate, is her ability to be able to navigate all these different spaces at one time. So your ability to like have an investor call one day and then be talking about the customer journey the same day or talking to all these different people. She'll be like, oh, yeah, I met this person and that person. Her ability to navigate three or four different spaces when you're because she's not only running a team, but she's also very client and customer facing. That is something that I think. I admire about her. And I think that that's important in a co-founding team. The thing I care about the most is the tech, the product. That's what I'm going to make sure we build. So whatever she's talking about, we actually put pedal to the metal. The second piece is like her ability to see what someone is saying, even if she doesn't fully agree. Me, if somebody tells me something that I don't like or I don't agree with, I check out. I'm like, okay, next. And I think that's as a result of me having to go through the computer science program and some of the struggles I've had there. But she has this ability to be able to talk to people and get something out of the conversation. Even if she didn't agree with everything they said, she's still able to grab nuggets. And I sometimes struggle with that. So I think part of it is knowing what your weaknesses are and also being able to recognize where the person's strengths are. Yeah, it does. Because you know, how are you going to complete something if you don't kind of know what's left? Co-founders aren't all built the same. At least since no, we've no. been doing these interviews, it's like people got different skills. It's not even like tech or non-tech, to be honest. Yeah. It's like all over the place. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think the self-awareness is huge. Making sure that there's not too many visionaries and big thinkers on one co-founder team. Simone called me with the concept initially, and that was the last time that she came up with a concept. Because I am such a visionary person and I've come up with a hundred concepts and Simone shot down 96 of them, which is I'm so grateful for because they weren't well researched. They were just kind of throwing things and see what would stick. And I always use her as that kind of litmus test of does this make sense? Or I sometimes even go to her. She knows or I'll be in the office. I'll turn around. I'll be like. I just need you to tell me why we're not doing X, Y, Z. She'll be like, we're not doing that because it doesn't align with our values, who we're trying to serve, blah, 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 blah. And, and walk me back off of that ledge of maybe some of all those pieces of advice I get so that I'm not living in this world of here's all this input and not forcing it to be output, right? When you're trying to find a co-founder, don't put too much pressure on the beginning of it being like a perfect working relationship. Yeah. I think me and Simone are the type of people even when we were just friends, our friend group, we had like, the two of us and two other people, we in college would probably sit down quarterly with one of the four of us to talk about a growth theory. They'd be like, hey, Madison, I really think you need to work on your patients. Yeah. And after that, I really worked on my patients. And they would explain why, why that hurts the friendship dynamic, why it hurts their personal relationship with me. We've talked about it with every. So we already had this understanding of like a growth mindset and holding each other accountable and having very tough conversations. And that has helped us evolve. I think we've been stronger friends now, for example. But you have to find someone who is willing to put in the relationship-based work above yes. everything else because you can overcome anything else. But you can't overcome bad communication, a huge ego, someone who wants to just win and be right versus work together and find a good solution. Yeah, because we disagree a lot. A lot. How do you find some like somewhere in the middle with that disagreement? It's not about being right or being wrong. It's just like we're human. <laughs> we're going to disagree. But working through those disagreements is really the important piece, I think. Like with startups, you do not know what is right. Yeah. So there is no right. 
that's why you have to challenge each other and figure out what is the best and work together to figure that out. Yeah. And that can evolve really quickly. So you can't take it personally when your co-founder is like, I really think we shouldn't be doing that. Okay, great. Let's discuss why. And we have a good methodology of doing that. And it just gets better over time. So <laughs> quarterly check-ins, is your friend group accepted applications? That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going on our annual roommate retreat this Friday, actually. I know. Uh-huh. I wish you would our friends, Andy and Courtney, we should call them out. Yeah. Yeah, That's awesome. You brought up something like friendships. It's in um, maybe a dying art in a lot of ways. And I say that because you really have to study being a good friend. My dad is a a minister Mm -hmm. and he reads a lot of ministerial books. That explains your voice and cadence. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) You know, the apple in the tree, I guess is what they say. But in one of the books, he was recommended that I, you know, parse one of the chapters. And it was saying, if you're going out to find a friend, You'll be searching for a really long time. But if you go out to be a friend, you won't have to go very far. And it sounds like that's what you all have kind of adopted as a part of your ethos, which is super cool. And because of that synergy and unity that you all have, it's resulted in actual big checks, like sizable size uh, (laughs) checks. If you had a million dollars today with no strings attached, nobody's saying, hey, okay, in 12 months, six months, make sure this is included. None of that. If you had a million dollars, how would you deploy that capital today? It could be for the business or personally, but this is generally like if we drop a million in each of your pockets, so I guess it'd be two, two million dollars. Yeah. How would you spend? If I had it today and everything else is the same, like you literally, we walk out this podcast here and you give me a million dollars. I am not going to be putting it into the business, not because I don't think the business needs an extra million dollars, but because we already have investors that have bought into this business at this valuation and I don't want to further dilute that with with this own capital. So I would honestly probably start using it for angel investing to invest in other startups that I also believe in, or even maybe even start a grant program with the side hustlers on our platform who maybe need $300 to buy a camera. They're really interested in photography, but their camera just broke. So maybe we could have a nonprofit side of Clutch that's just helping supply some of these intro level side hustle supplies to students. But I actually want to invest it directly in the business because we already have kind of our roadmap of how we're going to be spending this money and the metrics we're going to get to to continue raising money. I am very privileged in the fact that both of my parents are college educated, have their retirement set up, those type of things. And I I had a full ride. I had a scholarship when I was at Purdue. So I don't have a lot of things to really pay off for people in my family. And so that's why my initial thought was actually to spend it on the business. Obviously, that's a life-changing amount of money. So maybe I also buy a little house. Maybe so. (laughs) I think you're the first person, I think, who has said it quite like that in terms of, you know, using the bulk of it for angel investing. I don't know if you have any background or experience with that, but you know, what would your sort of approach be? Where would you go to get started with that? Because most of the people listening here aspire to be angel investors. Yeah. So I think because of just how much I have been pitching over the last year and learning more about the space, I have talked to so few Black women investors from the angel side to the VC side, and it is a struggle. There are like four who are like top of mind for everyone, right? Their email and their DMs are bombarded constantly. So there just needs to be more. There needs to be more. I could, even if I was just writing $10,000 checks, but was, hey, I'm going to dedicate 10 hours a week to talking to startups and helping them and giving them advice. I could advertise that on social. I could do whatever. And if it's angel check, it's, it's my risk. I might not be making the best investment decisions, but there's such a surplus of founders who don't have anyone who looks like them to talk to, being able to say, hey, I'm not going to just be wasting your time giving you random advice. I also might be making an investment, I think would bring about really good opportunity to be able to grow that network and begin angel investing. Mm. But not necessarily to make a huge return because that was a million dollar gift. You know, if I make a return, I make a return. And if I don't look at the great like impact I was able to make just being able to provide some of early learnings I have to these other early, early startups. Absolutely. Totally. And I want to stay here for a second too, because I'm actually 25,000 words into a book about micro angel investing because I've been investing during my twenties and I realized a number of things and I'm still realizing a lot to this day. But when folks reach out to be an angel investor or an advisor, they often say their value add is going to be one of two things. Mm -hmm. They say, we're going to make introductions and we can give you advice. Right. And I thought that that was super valuable back in the day until I realized that either one of those things are going to get received for full value. It's unpredictable for introductions. Oftentimes, if it works, it's great. But 
do you want to hinge, you know, percentage points on that? I don't know. And when it comes to advice, most of the time, I don't know if you all have dealt with, you don't always take 100% of the advice yeah, you get sure. anyway. So what other ways can you add value as an angel investor? I think it's dependent on your particular skills. But to me, it's about solving real problems in the moment. If somebody calls you and says, hey, I have these laundry lists, you say, well, what's the priority? And they tell you, can you solve that problem? Right. Yeah. That's valuable. If you yes. say, hey, consider this or think about this or go talk to somebody else. To me, that's not full value. Right. So the book is largely about what are ways where you can tap into that a little bit more about my story. But I'm wondering what your that. thoughts are on that. I think some of the value that I could provide would be on the people side of it and how to lead a team as empathetic leaders. That might help with your hiring. That might help with your firing. That might help with how to find a good co-founder, how to manage those relationships. Those are the things at this level I feel actually very confident in because I know our foundation is strong, not just school founders, but just in the team we've built even yeah. and the values that we have. I, again, since eight years old, have always been very aware of leadership and follower dynamic. So teacher to student, parent to child, boss to new hire. I'm obsessed with making sure that in every dynamic, I'm recognizing the power dynamic how to make things more equitable, transparent, inclusive, those type of things. And I think that's where I could add value now, but I'm sure there's also other ways that I just haven't even thought of because I don't think angel investing is something that I'll be able to do unless you really can write that check anytime soon. I think you'll probably have even more skills than you might think because uh -huh. negotiation is yeah, a skill. If somebody calls you up and say, hey, I'm losing yeah. this, yep. there's a sticking point. If you can't really provide even an inch forward, it's not a value add. But you totally. can, it, and both of y'all have experience negotiating. You know, yeah. sales is related to that, yeah. copywriting. Yeah. I mean, there are specific things that we don't think are skill sets that are actually pretty key for, for startups. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add on your million yet, because we still have <laughs> another half of this pot to spend. But how would you spend the million? So. Um, I would probably spin it in a different way. Just considering my own personal experience, I would probably use that money to either create a pipeline program or a program specifically built for black women interested in studying software engineering, very specifically. There's not a lot of us. And I think that if there was something that basically helped bridge the gap between you don't have to be perfect at coding, but you can leverage what you learn here to build a company or lead a team, you'd be surprised because the level of detail and the level of thought that goes into writing a program is the same level of detail and thought that goes into deciding on how you're going to create a new feature or how you are going to communicate something from the top down. Being able to show that there's more to tech than just knowing how to code and bringing people along that journey would definitely be something I'd put that money towards because and it doesn't necessarily mean that they'd have to be in college, but just a way for more black women to get their hands on technology and also learn different ways to leverage what they learn from software development or creating a website or maybe being a graphic designer, whatever that looks like. And then we'll hire them. I was yeah. going to say, you two really are. Like, and then hire them. <laughs> train them up, get them ready. And then you're gonna the other thing is I would say when it comes to angel investing, I think it's interesting. I've had a hard time finding a mentor for a multitude of reasons. And I think one of the biggest things would actually, from, from a value add perspective, maybe not from me, but what I would look for is someone who could get in the weeds with me and be able to tangibly tell me, Am I running this team properly? Is this an industry standard? Is there something I'm missing to become more efficient when we have release cycles and all these different things? Because they want to give you advice on product market fit and who's your consumer and that whole strategy. But there's not a lot of people out there that are coming in and taking a look at your architecture or taking a look at your infrastructure and saying, mm, this doesn't look right. If you want to scale, you're going to have to do these three things. Ultimately, the cart does become before the horse in a startup. So right now, we're testing something out, but the product isn't there yet. So how do I get the product there fast enough quality such that we can keep up with what the vision is and what we're trying to do? Absolutely. And if there's somebody listening right now, that's definitely a skill set that would be needed. I mean, it's rare to find. Speaking of help, and Madison, you were talking about advice. Now let's talk about something specific that you have heard from somebody else or advice you saw somewhere that has actually been profitable for you. Like, what is the most profitable piece of advice that you've received? And it doesn't have to be 
you know, go talk to this person, they write you a check, but it could be, you know, a variety of things that later on along the way in this company, now you're like, this is why dollars are in our bank account now, because I took this advice. The first instance of this was because of the accelerator program where they were like, you are talking about serving students. How many students have you surveyed? And I was like, mm. <laughs> not enough. <laughs> and I actually went on Reddit and I went into all these different chats with all these different universities and was like, hey, if you fill out this survey, we'll give you $5. And of course they got flagged on some of them, whatever. But we got, I think, 600 respondents within two days just from that survey, which was a good enough, you know, survey accuracy to show would people use a product such as this. I think traditionally people wouldn't go to Reddit to try to promote a survey, right? So that then evolved into how we got those waitlist signups. It was through DMing students and saying, hey, can you post this on your page or the student-run page you run? Post a literal like poll on your Instagram story and ask people to drop their emails if they want to get signed up for the waitlist. And within those six weeks, 2,500 people had signed up. I'm still trying to be creative in how we're problem solving this marketing. Gen Z's exist in the digital world in hiding, but in plain sight. You have to go directly to them to really hear their voice and to get feedback from them. And that has been something that I think I don't see done a lot. And whenever I tell other people trying to market to Gen Z's, they don't get. And that's why they're coming to us to find these students to book. And so all of those things have really, that first initial piece of advice has really snowballed to where we're at now, where other businesses are like, I don't have the time to do those things you did. Can you actually connect me with a student? And that's why we even opened it up to working with businesses and students. We know it's not all serious, right? Like you all are kind of focused and locked in. That's pretty clear with the success you've had. You have fun too. Yeah. Talk about how you keep it fun in your business. I mean, you're working with college students, so maybe that keeps you <laughs> keeps you young. But um, maybe you could talk about ways that you have fun in clutch. First off, our team is so fun. Yeah. We hired people in our network, and we had, for example, our team kind of kick off and retreat, where some of us had never met in person. Yeah. I mean, none of us had met everyone in person. We brought everyone to Arizona and got this cool Airbnb that had like a mini golf course on it, a little tennis court. And it was just so fun being able to learn more about each other and like play together. Yeah. And see the way everyone thinks too. Yeah. And so we did these like fun work exercises, but also just outside of that, like what do we do? Go-karting and other things. Yeah. We went go-karting. We actually had a chef come to the house and cook for us. And it was like an immersive experience. So we all, yeah. He like talking us through the entire thing. And that was just such a fun retreat. I'm such an old lady. I would go to bed early, but after like nighttime, they would like get together. There was a jacuzzi. That was fun. I think the other thing is we also try to get together as a team and like brainstorm. And even though that kind of sounds serious, it's fun also because everyone gets to like incorporate their ideas about what we should be doing. And we also throw events on college campuses here in Houston. So one of the ways we do our marketing is we have events on campus and those are also yeah. Instagram is very fun. We just posted that a euphoria meme yesterday. Yes. Like, oh, Santana real the other yeah. day. Like just, we don't want to take things too seriously. Our t-shirts say side hustle and flow. And we try to make also what we're doing not too serious because it's never that deep. And I think that's just like fundamentally how we treat the team. We try to make sure we have no meetings on Fridays or even no, I tell my team, no. don't be on Slack. Don't be doing anything after like, one Eastern on Friday. We have unlimited PTO. We have like our birthday shout outs and everything else. And we're all like friends, which we didn't want to force yeah. at all. And we're yeah. so grateful that they do feel that type of closeness. But it has been fun working with people who are fun. If there's a holiday that month, we will make sure everyone takes off. This is something I think Madison came up with, but I really like it because oftentimes too at companies, you'll get unlimited PTO, but then you're kind of afraid to use it or you feel like you have too much work. And if you sort of force everyone to just take some time off, forced to take a day off rather than it being a choice, boundaries and mental health. Like we really care about our team being able to like truly take a break because this is hard work. We are a small team and burnout does happen and we fully recognize that. So Part of being able to have fun is also being able to like bring yourself to work. And part of bringing yourself to work is saying, I need a day. Or five. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And we're going to stay on this topic of lightheartedness and fun because I'm super curious to know if you'll pick the same person, different people, completely different kind of genre. This next question is about how you get in your flow. Mm -hmm. Which artist Mm -hmm. 
most inspires the work that you do. I know we're kind of inundated with the wall right here. Uh, You know, a ton of albums. We got Diana Ross, you know, Solange, Jermaine Jackson and all this. But it doesn't have to be someone who's musically inclined. Any artist that you draw inspiration from, who is that person? Drake and Kid Cudi. Down. Drake, I know it sounds so basic, but Drake has been there for all the like total moments of my life. And so has Kid Cudi. Their music, especially Kid Cudi. His music has gotten me through like the angsty years and all that. So one of my favorite songs by him is On the Pursuit of Happiness. Not everything that glitters is not gold. That's how I feel. Not everything that glitters is gold. What we're doing might seem sexy from the outside. My God. <laughs> Three my weeks God. ago, we were a mess. Like we, two days ago. <laughs> two days ago. And so I'm just like, I really appreciate that side of Kid Cudi. And I think Drake only because I've been able to kind of come up with him in a way. He also was like, angsty when I was angsty and now he has that song you know laugh now cry later sort of thing like Cuddy has been making the rounds I want to say he is inspiring uh Burroughs in the Super Bowl he's like listening in I think they have something going on Mm. there so that's a good good choice and good company what about for you Madison I think the natural selection is of course Beyonce (laughs) her her work ethic her ability to stay true to her values throughout her entire growth and trajectory has been incredible. On a different note, Crystal and Kid Fury from The Read. I have been listening to them since high school. Their ability to take very complicated, very tough things happening in the zeitgeist and be able to communicate them effectively and say, this is not right, this is injustice, while still having a comedy podcast has been incredible. Their discussions on mental health are probably some of the reasons I went to therapy when I did. Their ability to highlight Black excellence every week. And no matter how bad things are, always set the foundation and grounding of that, I think is a really good example of the type of communicator and leader I would want to be. I always want to be someone who can be grounded in gratitude, no matter what is going wrong, but also be able to communicate really tough things to an audience, to a team in a way that doesn't feel like the world is ending while still being transparent on where I'm at in my maybe mental health journey or my different issues that could be impacting the way that I might be communicating at that time. Good. Mm-hmm. And it's fitting because we're in Houston, Texas right now. Yes. So Beyonce, all the oh, love yes. in the world there. Talk to us about where we're sitting right now and the impact that you know these various institutions are having on the Houston startup ecosystem mm. and also what you're most excited about here in Houston. Right now in the podcast room of Common Desk. And Common Desk is a company within the ION. It's a co-working. Co-working space similar to WeWork. I think they actually just got acquired by WeWork. It's a land grant by Rice. I think Rice actually owns it. But Chevron's here. Microsoft is here. And it was basically a space built for tech startups trying to like create this new ecosystem because traditionally historically Austin has been kind of where everyone goes. That's where the startup environment lives. Through the ION it's just been incredible to see all the other founders that are here and that we've been able to bond and like meet as well as like all the events that happen here, like Capital Factories here. We just joined Capital Factory a couple months ago. Having a space for everyone to come to and build a community with in person is so much more impactful, especially after the pandemic where everything was virtual. Real quick on the ION, like when I, this is my first time coming into the ION uh, is it the ION or just ION? Yeah, the ION. The ION. So, uh, but a number of folks have had nothing but good things to say about it. So I was happy that we were, you know, able to record in here. But this is pretty special, I would think, as far yeah. as cities go to have this type of concentration of resources. I think it's huge. You don't get this in a lot of places, or if you do, yeah. it's hard to get in. They gave me a little bit, you know, they gave me a little bit at the front, but we worked it out and I was able to get in um, as you all arrived because I got here early, but it's special. You can feel the energy and even on a Saturday when no one's in here, it looks productive. Yeah, I think I think what's fantastic about the Ion and also the location, we're in the middle of Midtown. We're like three miles away from Texas Southern, two miles away from Rice, a mile and a half from St. Thomas University. University of Houston is also right next to TSU. So all of those schools have really also embraced entrepreneurship, investing in the students, creating innovation cohorts and entrepreneurship groups and making it part of the curriculum in a way that I haven't really seen happen in the Midwest, happen in the South at a lot of these schools. And they are really big on even collaboration cross school to make sure that people are continuing to be innovative and think through these ideas because Houston is very great at not gatekeeping. Yes. Prior to Houston, I was living in Oakland. 
did I know anyone in the investment space? Maybe like two people. It was so hard to get a meeting. It was so hard to get mentors. The second I got to Houston, literally the week one. Floodgates open. Floodgates open. Everyone's like, oh, Madison, oh, let me, you know. And and still to this day, it's been an almost overwhelming amount of people that want to make sure we're thriving. Yes. And for no reason, like they don't really have a lot of buy-in, but people in Houston are very friendly like that and want to see people win. Yeah. And I think that you can't really fabricate that kind of culture. It just has to come naturally. A lot of people are like, oh, I would never move to Texas because, you know, it's so conservative, everything else. Houston is a very liberal city. Austin's a very liberal city, Dallas as well. You know, the big cities are. But more importantly, even in these liberal cities, that doesn't mean that people are going to still root for Black women openly. People in Houston root for Black women openly. And Black women in Houston root for Black women a lot more than what I've seen. I'm from Atlanta, and this might be a controversial statement. I was telling this to him. I didn't get that feeling i grew up there i have my best of friends there but the way black women root for each other here is so much more obvious <laughs> like and also seeing all the success of the black women some of them on this wall even but seeing all the success of the black women out of houston and knowing that that's not abnormal so there's even white men who we have as some of our biggest advocates because mm-hmm. it's not oh they're the black women i'm going to support today no they just support black women all the time because they grew up in houston they know black people and latino people and you know all it's one of the most diverse cities all thrive yeah and there isn't this sort of mentality of scarcity absolutely you're right houston is a billion dollar market you mentioned yeah. atlanta as well who knows houston may have more room to climb it, it definitely seems that way now and i think it's cool that you all have experiences in other cities, but more particularly in other startup ecosystem communities, whether you were able to break in or not. Mm -hmm. So if you were to leave Houston, other than Silicon Valley or Oakland, the Bay Area generally, what other city market would you move to? Probably Austin, Miami, or Chicago. I also am the type of person that would live anywhere. So (laughs) That's a tough question for me to answer, yeah. And I love Houston. I lived in Seattle. I've lived in Miami. I've lived in Oakland. I've lived in Indiana. Obviously, I've lived in Chicago, and now I live in Houston. And I want a community that is a little bit more accessible than like a New York, where I can maybe afford to live there. You know, yeah, crazy concept. I I put Chicago because I think there's a lot of really great innovation coming out of the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest, and I think pouring into that community would be really great. I think Miami has a lot of potential, and I know it's a lot of like, oh, everyone's moving to Miami to start startups. But I did enjoy my time there, and I think there is a great source of talent. And then I think Austin's obvious because it is more of like the traditional, if I'm going to stay in Texas, I probably would go to Austin first. Yeah. But it's not necessarily something that I'm trying to do, but if I had to. Yeah, yeah I'd probably go to, honestly, wherever my family is. Like, we're, we joke about being codependent and we kind of are. So the magic number now is, or I guess for a long time, has been a billion dollars, right? Like pretty oh, arbitrary like maybe as, yeah, being a unicorn, right? So do you want to run a billion dollar company? Why or why not? I'm a hard yes. I don't know if Madison right today is ready to do that, but I am actively pursuing the guidance to be able to do that should that happen. One of our advisors, co-founder Match.com, that is a huge marketplace and his coaching has been really helpful. I'm also having maybe like quarterly meetings with Stacey Brown Philpo, who really got TaskRabbit from early stages to acquisition from Ikea. She's seen that type of rapid growth, for example, and she's a black woman who's done this. So I want to understand more because I think right now, yes, that's something I would want to do. I'm open to it, but I'm not a hard yes or a hard no. It depends on where I am in life. When I do have a family, I do want to be able to prioritize that. And if I have a family, does that mean I'll be able to prioritize them if I'm running something, a billion dollar company? I don't know. I might be able to, depending on, again, where my head's at and where I am in life. But Makes sense. Madison, you asked me a question before we came into this studio. And at this particular hypothetical app lunch party night, that question is yours. So what question would you ask of a founder in such a situation? First off, I absolutely love what sounds like, yeah, like a saloon of just incredible talent. I think that's so magical and 
something I'm excited to see more of now that we're coping with COVID. Yeah, that's amazing. I love, I love it. Well, I would ask a founder, like stage agnostic, a black founder in one of these rooms would be what was your hardest day and what helped you move through it that came like from within. People don't talk about it enough. And I think you can get a lot of value out of hearing about some of these like really low moments. Not just moments where it's like, oh, we got bad news. Let's figure out what we're going to do, like game plan. Yeah, that like sucks. But there's Same moments thing. where you really feel down. Yeah. And and you really feel like, like almost like writer's block where you can't even work. So what did you do? I think those stories would probably be something I would never forget. Yeah. And probably shut the party down, to be honest with you. That's a very yeah, good question. Maybe. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> Simone, for you? My question would be, why are you here beyond the money, beyond the product, beyond all of the things that investors and friends care about? Why are you here? Why are you doing what you're doing? Because that ultimately speaks to if you're not able to make this work, you're going to be malleable in some other way. So I would want to know what's driving you to do this. That's a good question. It's a very good question. I know we've been in here for easily over an hour but does it feel like we've come to sort of the final yeah. question the stage here? sure <laughs> uh, and you all kind of said this in different ways throughout this interview but just one more time for the recency effect what is the most valuable thing that clutch does for its customers when i think of our customers i'm thinking of the student side hustlers those are the people that i hold closest I think we both do. What we provide is a safe space for them to explore their creative side and do it on their own terms. Like I always say, I think something that's always been important for me is being able to live my life on my own terms. And not everyone has the privilege to be able to do that. And so the more that we can provide somebody the space and the tools to be able to do that, I think the better off we will be. And Madison has always said this too. If I could just impact one person, one side hustler, we have one that comes to mind, I don't want to call her out, but she has been able to have customers booking her. The confidence that comes out of being able to have a talent, put yourself out there for that talent and see it yield results, whether it's monetary or just learning how to do someone's hair. The first domino has fallen. Now I can keep going and keep seeing what I'm going to be able to do. That's what we did when we started this company. And that's what we want to enable other people to do. Ditto. This has been really good. A great conversation. And there's one more question, though. There's one more question. If you were listening to this right now and you really liked what the Clutch team had to say and you wanted to reach out today and get a response, what is the best way, easiest way for folks to do that, Madison Simone? Go to thatsclutch.com because... Depending on who you are, if you're a student, you can immediately apply to be a side hustler on there. If you're a business, you can fill out the business request form and be part of our beta program. Go on there to see more of what we do and then reach out to me on LinkedIn. Versus just going initially to LinkedIn, I would say go there first because I think our website really shows and articulates the vision of this business. Got it on the website. So I'm going to pause here, right? Second, sure. Because people say I'm too easy okay. on, on you all, right? So you're telling me if I reach out to you on LinkedIn, I can get a response today because you all just won like hell of money. Probably a lot of people uh, reaching out. Yeah. No, my DMs are crazy today, but usually I respond to people on LinkedIn within a day. Okay. okay. I mean, not on weekends. <laughs> I try not to I try not to do too much communicating externally on weekends because I don't want to set the expectation that I'm available all the time. Got it. So Monday through Friday, business hours, Monday yeah. through Friday, LinkedIn. Or you can DM me on Twitter. It's Madison Long L Zero N G. I would prefer email, actually. Simone at that'splush.com. But yeah, if you're interested in talking, I'm always open. It will have to be on a business day though. Ditto to that. Yeah, sounds good. I mean, people do. I'm kind of surprised by how many people really do reach out to, to the guests here. So you might have one or two folks who really, you know, oh, vibe awesome. with you or more, you know, yeah. who really vibe with you. So that would be cool. But like I said, enjoyed this. And I got to say, this is the first time that I've interviewed co-founders together in the same oh, wow. room. Oh, wow. So thank you for sort of this inaugural experience for us. But it's been wonderful. I've learned a lot. I want you all to have the last word. Not to be corny, but part of doing anything that scares you and anything that's hard is just doing it. Mm. Most advice can really be summed up to that. Well, have you tried? You want all this advice and saying, have you tried it? Have you, have you done it yet? Have you done just 1% better than you did yesterday? 
I fully believe in that and it also helps you not get overwhelmed. If you have a great idea, why not spend a week jotting down notes in your notes app as you think of other concepts? Maybe eventually that'll turn into something because you happen to bring it up to someone in a coffee shop and they're like, oh, would love to like talk more about that. You never know. I think so many people look back and say, you know what? I had that idea 10 years ago and I should have just done something with it. And that is not the place that I want to live. I have no regrets in anything I've chosen in my career because I've always just said, I'm just going to try it. Even if it's abnormal or goes against the grain, at least I tried it and I answered the question for myself and no one can take that away from me. Whatever big idea you have for your life, whether it's being the CEO of a major fortune 500 company or becoming one of the best teachers at an elementary school take whatever it is you want to do and just break it down day by day and i think that's sort of like what madison's also touching on which is as long as you just give one percent ten percent of your time to the thing that you really want to do and you're most passionate about you'd be surprised at what you'll end up doing it might not be exactly that you might not end up being the ceo of a fortune 500 company but you will end up on a path and on a trajectory that meant something to you just by starting and taking it day by day. Accept failure and turn it into something better, like lemons to lemonade. I failed so many times. I failed as a regional program chair, I would say. I failed classes. I failed tests. I failed a lot of different things. But because I failed at those things, I was actually able to take something from it and turn it into a, a lesson and something I could use down the line. Also, sorry, I know we did that, but we failed with this business. Yeah. We, this true. is our third iteration of a business and a concept. That yeah. means that those other two are failures. Yeah. Technically, they're all under the same incorporation, but so still, technically, yeah. we it's failed failed. And we are okay with that. Yeah. We've, I don't even think we see it. I don't see it as failure, see it but as like, failure. you're right. But I'm just saying, most people would be like, this is, a pandemic happened. Stadium shut down all around the world. Let's go back to working at Microsoft and chill out yeah and we've always been like that's okay let's just see what we can do one percent better tomorrow and see how we can try, try something again. new let's yeah. let's just at least try why not no yeah. what do we have to lose you have your mandate from the clutch team today is the day like i said i've enjoyed this conversation and thank you until next time we bid you adieu thank you Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever medium of choice that you have. But thank you for joining, and we'll see you next week.